Have you ever shopped on Craigslist? Perhaps shopped is not necessarily the right word, but have you ever placed an ad or perhaps answered an ad on Craigslist? It's an old online service that has filled a need for millions. A little trivia for you. Craig Newmark started the service back in 1995 as a kind of distribution list to his friends with local events and other activities in the San Francisco area. And it blew up from there to what we have now, which is a worldwide classifieds portal. You can literally find anything on there. In the beginning, it was a hot classifieds ad site. If you were looking for a date or some sort of alternative hookup, Craigslist was the place to go. This is what my friends have told me. I have sold many things on Craigslist. Cameras, bicycles, an electric scooter, actually recently. I've sold a mattress on there, believe it or not. Anything comes and goes on Craigslist. But there's one rule that everybody needs to keep in mind. You should always, always meet the person that you are buying from or selling to in a very public place. It's common sense. Almost all of the items that I've sold on Craigslist has been here in Tokyo, and I always meet the person inside the train station. Absolutely nothing can go wrong there. Now, if you're selling a car, it's a little difficult to meet inside the train station. In that case, you need to go into another public place, perhaps close to a police station or in a police station's parking lot. If it's in a rural area, you insist on meeting in a more populated area. Now, the difference between, say, eBay and Craigslist is on eBay, there's absolutely no contact between the two parties. Much safer. Craigslist, you have more face-to-face -face bargaining power. I sold something from my studio years ago to a guy. He turned up, and then he offered me a very low-ball price. But he was so charming that I felt guilty not selling it to him because he had come a long ways. Dude got a hell of a bargain. And turns out, it was a friend of mine's roommate. Now, in this case, I did kind of break the rule and allowed him into my house to demo the equipment. But I'm still alive and here to tell you this story, which we're finally getting to. Still got some popcorn left? Craigslist is, by and large, a place filled with good, honest folk. But there's always some individual who's got to screw that up and exploit a good thing. And that's exactly what happened to a retired couple who placed an ad on Craigslist looking for a classic car. And one young man replied to the ad and then hatched a very sinister plot. I'd like to give a quick thanks to all of our lovely Patreon supporters who contribute each month to help support the production costs of this podcast Thank you very much for helping to keep the cogs of Homicide, Inc. turning. It's a huge help. And an extra special thanks to our Yakuza members for your extra contributions. And enjoy an additional two Homicide, Inc. podcasts each month. Thanks, guys. And I'd like to invite you all to help raise awareness of this podcast by rating and reviewing it. Go ahead and click the five stars and leave a review if you'd like. Thanks so much. All right, let's get back into the story. The original Ford Mustang. Loads of ponies under the long, sleek hood out front, and plenty of space for four. Hardtop, fastback, or convertible. It was a fast, sporty, 
and wildly popular vehicle of its day in the mid-60s. And today, it's a classic many would kill for, some quite literally. And that's the irony of this story. It all began in Georgia, in the sleepy town of Marietta, on the 19th of January, 2015. Elderly husband and wife, El Ray, affectionately known as Bud, and June Runyon had put together their life savings and decided they were going to buy something dreamy. A car. But not just any car. A classic red 1966 Mustang convertible, to be precise. El Ray had been wanting one for years and had finally decided to take the plunge. He was looking for a replica of the 66 Stang convertible he bought after returning from the Vietnam War decades earlier. And where else would he turn to but Craigslist? He created a simple advert stating that he was looking for this particular car to buy and his budget. All they had left to do was wait and dream. A dream worth waiting for in most circumstances. But sadly, not this time. The Runyons didn't have to wait long. They had a response after a few days. On the Craigslist app, the potential seller had told them that he had one of those Ford convertibles that he was willing to sell to them. They were pumped. He seemed decent enough. And besides, they were going out to look at the car first before handing over any money. El Ray knew all about the scams people pulled on the internet these days, and he wanted to see the car in person. So, on that Thursday, January 22nd, El Ray and June packed their bags and their cash and hopped into their SUV. They were headed to a small rural town in South Georgia, McRae. The drive was about three hours long, but the time whizzed by as the couple excitedly discussed all the places they would go in their new car and how much their kids would enjoy riding in it. Top down, naturally. At 3.30 p.m., June had texted their daughter, expressing her excitement, and to let her know that they were almost at the seller's place. And that was the last time they were ever heard from. Almost three hours away back at home, Virginia Owens, daughter of June and Elray, had begun to get worried. It was Saturday, and her parents hadn't shown up to babysit the grandkids. This was highly unusual as they absolutely adored the kids. Virginia called and called, but there wasn't an answer. She knew something was wrong and called the police. Her parents were missing. At the time, before they had found her parents' SUV, Virginia had said, If someone has taken them, we have forgiven that person, because God tells us to love and forgive. That there is some true conviction. Police arrived at the Runyon's house and searched inside the suburban Atlanta home. They noticed immediately that the couple's cell phones and chargers weren't there. Virginia had explained to the police that her parents had gone to view a car her dad had wanted to buy. Maybe they were still there. Police checked the Craigslist account and were able to identify the potential seller, a Mr. Ronnie Adrian J. Towns. Police knew he made the last contact with the couple, but when questioned, he told them that they never showed up to see the car 
and he never heard from them. Well, guess what? Upon further investigation, police found evidence that this guy did not actually own the classic red 66 Mustang the Runyons were looking to buy. So why would he set them up? It was all a ruse to rob them of their hard-earned cash. The phone he used to communicate with the Runyons was a burner. He still had it when the cops questioned him. The following Monday, the police raced up to the rural farmlands of McRae to search for the couple and to arrest Ronnie Towns for attempted robbery, and he was also charged with lying to the police. Volunteers and police also found the couple's SUV that Monday, sunken in the pond on the town's property. It was not looking good for the missing Runyons. As authorities continued their search, they came upon a final grisly find of the day. Two bodies were hidden nearby. By the next day, the bodies would be identified as El Ray and June Runyon. The police also had one suspect, already in custody, and he was singing. Very convenient. The police didn't have to do much digging, as Ronnie, accompanied by his family, confessed to killing the elderly couple. They were a tight-knit family, and they were the ones to convince him to confess. Ronnie was close with his uncle, Buddy Towns, who told the press that he was shocked to hear his nephew was involved. Ronnie had often worked with him, installing carpet and flooring. The locals knew him well. Ronnie was a good kid and quite intelligent, according to his uncle. When the news came that Ronnie had confessed to murdering this couple, each with a gunshot to the head, the local community was shocked and horrified. McRae was a small farming community where everyone knew each other. The downtown area had even won an award for being the sixth safest city in Georgia. Well, I think we can assume that they won't be keeping that title for long. Growing up, Ronnie had a good childhood, got along with his parents. He lived on a farm where his father grew pine trees, soybeans, corn, and peanuts. His family was well-liked, and so was he. What made his actions even more shocking to the local community was that he had a family of his own, a wife and a young daughter in the neighboring Wheeler County. Ronnie Towns supported them by working construction jobs for a local home builder. He didn't look like a killer. That's the unnerving part. His family, especially his father, whom he was very close to, was incensed to hear the news of his involvement. The entire community was feeling betrayed. Friends and family of El Ray and June were equally stunned and saddened. They couldn't wrap their heads around the fact that this nice guy had lured the couple out and killed them. It just didn't make sense. Nothing about his motives made sense. Ugly things like this always seem to happen to the best of society. Good, honest, and trusting folks with huge hearts like the Runyons. The Runyons were well-liked and known for their charitable works in the community and throughout the South. El Ray and June had successfully run a charity called Bud's Bicycles. This had started years earlier as Bud was driving through Marietta one Christmas Eve and saw two young girls sorting through a dumpster 
looking for toys. He was moved by this and went home and fixed up two bicycles belonging to his own girls and delivered them as gifts. The charity ran loosely through the local Mount Perrin Church of God, the same church where he and June had met. The couple had even gone as far as to build a shed on their property to house the bicycles they were going to donate, and eventually their charity grew to the point where they were also collecting food, school supplies, clothing, bedding, and even household goods. Their other daughter, Brittany, had said that her dad often told them, You can't take the money with you when you're gone. You might as well spend it and enjoy it. She fondly remembers her father helping the homeless or simply picking up other people's tabs at stores. He was a good man. The death rocked the local neighborhood. If someone lives their life like this and this happens, it really tests your faith, said their neighbor Tom Murphy. Isn't this the age-old question, why do bad things always happen to good people? So that Tuesday morning, Ronnie was charged with malicious murder and armed robbery. While Ronnie had initially confessed to the crime, in court he pleaded not guilty. But the evidence all pointed to him, and he was eventually indicted and imprisoned. But this was not the end for Ronnie. Ronnie's lawyer found their glimmer of hope in the form of country court clerk Belinda Thomas. Turns out that Belinda had called four people she knew personally to ask if they would serve on a jury. Out of the four she invited, two sat on the jury. This is a problem, as those members on the jury could no longer be considered impartial. Ronnie's lawyers had said, this non-random selection of four individuals from the trial jury list, compounded by the self-selection of two of those individuals based on their willingness to serve, destroyed the randomness of the selection process for the trial. Belinda defended her decision, saying that she wasn't looking to game the system, it wouldn't look good for the county, and would be a total disservice to the Runyon family and friends. Ronnie's lawyers argued that this was grounds for a case dismissal, and the court judge agreed. Ronnie's indictment was dismissed. The judge had stated that the clerk of the court chose two of the jury seats purposefully and not at random as required by the statute. It would be an unfair result. This obviously outraged the family and the public, but there was nothing that they could do to change it. Other trial lawyers also disagreed with the dismissal, one saying, I do not believe that the clerk of court's method in this case for securing grand jurors from the list of persons who had been summoned to appear for service as trial jurors constituted a disregard of the essential and substantial provisions of the new statutory scheme governing jury selection such that it vitiated the array. In layman terms, he wasn't happy with the decision. Full stop. The state court had appealed to the Supreme Court. They were hoping that the judge would reconsider the dismissal. If necessary, the district attorney stated that he would ask another grand jury for a new indictment of Towns, as well as proceeding with a death penalty trial against Ronnie. While all this was happening, Ronnie had remained in the Dodge County Jail. The DA explained that the actual root of the issue with Ronnie's case is that there are too few jurors 
and how jury pools are comprised since the Georgia Supreme Court overturned the old jury commission method of setting jury lists. Georgia now relies on a computer system and the addresses of the citizens are frequently outdated or in error. Many people don't show up for jury duty either, creating a problem for many cases throughout Georgia. The minimum needed for a court is 16 jurors, but now with this new system, courts are not meeting this number, resulting in cases being dismissed, just like that of Ronnie Towns. So what does this mean for Ronnie and the grieving Runyon family? Because of this mishap, his trial would essentially start again from the beginning, all four years of work down the drain. This doesn't guarantee that the new case will be concluded in four years either. Sometimes it can take decades, which is extremely frustrating for the victim's family, in much need for closure. What a terribly sad story. Let's hope that justice is served soon. For the sake of June and El Ray Runyon, and their loving family. Well, thanks very much for tuning in to the Homicide, Inc. True Crime Podcast. I'd like to invite you again to rate this podcast, whether it's on Spotify or Apple Podcasts or wherever you're listening from. Be a pal, click the stars, and leave a review if you'd like to. This helps tremendously in getting our podcast into more ears. Thank you very much. Also, make sure you subscribe so you'll get notifications as soon as a new episode is released. And be sure to check out our Patreon campaign for exclusive homiciding podcasts that are available first to patrons. That information is in the description of this podcast. If you have a compelling true crime story you'd like me to consider investigating, please send me an email. And if you'd like to help support the production of the homiciding podcast, you can always buy us a coffee. Those details are also in the description and on the Homicide Inc. website where you can hear all the podcasts and some other cool stuff. Well, thanks so much, and we'll see you again very soon. Ciao for now.